the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today on the program, we're going to give away our second copy of Between Heaven and the Real World, Stephen Curtis Chapman's autobiography, along with two tickets to Stephen Curtis Chapman's acoustic Christmas concert that's coming up on Sunday, December 15th, 7 o'clock p.m., Rolling Hills Community Church in Tualatin. We're also going to talk with Chris Palmer. He is the author of Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. He is a Greek scholar and applies that scholarship to uh, the book. It's a, a survey, if you will, um, and a devotional. I think you'll you'll enjoy that conversation and certainly would enjoy the book. We're also going to talk with Mark Anderson of Call to All, that's the number two, Call to All, he's the president. Uh, the Christian world leaders, or some Christian world leaders, are gathering in Washington, D.C. to launch a global year of the Bible. They're meeting on the 16th of this month. It's a worldwide initiative that declares the value of the Bible to all. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, and we'll talk with Peter Sprigg, Senior Fellow for Policy Studies at the Family Research Council, on a landmark study that confirms there is no gay gene. And this isn't the only, the first study of its kind, but it is uh, the largest of its kind, and the most recent will tell you what it has to say and whether or not it's meaningful and if it has the potential to have any impact on public policy. First, to look at some of the day's headlines, the Central Intelligence Agency last night slammed what it called CNN's misguided and simply false reporting after the cable channel's chief national security correspondent authored a whole filled piece claiming that the CIA had pulled a high level spy out of Russia because President Trump had repeatedly mishandled classified intelligence and could contribute to exposing the covert source of, as a spy. The extraordinary CIA rebuke came as the New York Times published a bombshell piece late in the evening, which largely contradicted CNN's reporting. According to the Times, CIA officials made the arduous decision in late 2016 to offer to extract the source from Russia weeks before Trump even took office. And President Trump on Monday urged voters to take the first steps toward winning back the House in 2020 ahead of Tuesday's closely watched special election. Voters will decide whether Republican Dan Bishop or Democrat Dan McCready will hold a long vacant House seat. At a rally in Fayetteville, North Carolina on Monday night, the president indicated that he saw the election as a way of setting the tone for 2020. To stop the far left, you must vote in tomorrow's special election, the president told attendees before slamming Democratic candidate McCready. The president said a vote for any Democrat in 2020 is a vote for the rise of radical socialism and the destruction of the American dream, end quote. North Korea fired two unidentified projectiles into the East Sea on Tuesday. South Korea military officials said hours after the Hermit Kingdom offered to restart denuclearization talks with the United States, essentially saying, look at me, look at me. I haven't had much world attention in the last 15 minutes. Our military is observing the situation and maintaining readiness. South Korea's joint Joint Chiefs of Staff said in a statement, the White House hasn't commented on reports of the launching, which is the 10th such launch since May. 
Then Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe told the White House uh, in early February of 2017 that the Bureau was not considering Michael Flynn, the National Security Advisor at the time, for a potential Logan Act prosecution over conversations with a Russian ambassador before Donald Trump was sworn in as president. Government records reviewed indicate McCabe was referring to the rarely prosecuted 200 year old statute that bars American citizens from engaging with a foreign government without authorization from the current U.S. government. The records also indicate that before his firing, Flynn reported on two separate occasions that FBI agents told him the bureau investigation was over or being closed out. Both incidents raised questions over the underlying offense that formed the basis for the initial FBI and DOJ investigation into Flynn. The revelations come as Flynn is scheduled to appear in court for a uh, status conference on his case. Apparently, our Milky Way galaxy could be filled with alien civilizations. That's according to a new study. But we don't know because they haven't stopped by Earth for a visit in millions of years. According to a study published last month in the Astronomical Journal, extraterrestrial life might be taking its time to fully explore the galaxy, even using the movement of the star system to make this type of journey easier. It's scientific speculation. The scientists' work is the latest response to what's known as the Fermi Paradox, which one why we have yet to detect signs of alien life. Hmm. 50 attorneys general are joining an investigation into Google over possible antitrust violations. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, the initiative's leader, announced when there is no longer a free market or competition, this increase prices increases prices, even when something is marketed as free and harms consumers. That's a quote from Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody, a Republican. Is something really free if we are increasingly giving over our privacy information? Is something really free if online ad prices go up based on one company's control? And as of September 4th, the federal debt had already increased by more than a trillion dollars in fiscal 2019, with more than three weeks to go in the fiscal year. That's according to data released by the U.S. Treasury. So far, over the past 12 fiscal years, the federal debt has increased um, uh, an average of a trillion dollars per fiscal year. And the National Rifle Association filed a lawsuit against San Francisco Monday over the city's recent declaration that the gun rights lobby is a domestic terrorist organization. The lawsuit was filed in U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California against the city and county of San Francisco and the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. It accuses city officials of violating the gun lobby's free speech rights for political reasons and claims the city is trying to blacklist anyone associated with the organization from doing business there. Tangentially, 28 percent of Democrats say Americans should be prohibited by law from belonging to a pro-gun rights organization like the NRA, a view shared by 15 percent of Republicans and 10 percent of unaffiliateds, a Rasmussen survey has revealed. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has succeeded in his plan to suspend Britain's rebellious parliament for five weeks, but he's achieved little else in his first prolonged jousting with the lawmakers determined to prevent a no-deal Brexit. And more loss of life in the Bahamas. At least 50 deaths have been confirmed after Hurricane Dorian. A few shortcuts. If you don't like the law, you go across the street. You change it. It's not my job to do Congress's job. A quote from Justice Neil Gorsuch and from Representative Tulsi Gabbard. I think that the identity politics that are being used to further divide us, to further drive separations between us and purely for selfish political gain, 
is a real danger. And uh, House Majority Whip James Clyburn says, I really believe sincerely that if the Bill of Rights were put before the public today, I'm not too sure that we would hold on to them. Sadly, that's probably true. And on this day in history, 1897, a 25-year-old London taxi driver named George Smith becomes the first person ever arrested for drunk driving. Sadly, we've learned little since then. On this day in 1962, the U.S. Supreme Court orders the University of Mississippi to admit James Meredith, a black student. On this day in 1963, 20 black students enter Alabama public schools following a standoff between federal authorities and Governor George C. Wallace. Finally, on this day in 1991, the Senate Judiciary Committee opens hearings on the nomination of Clarence Thomas to the U.S. Supreme Court. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next two segments, we'll talk with Chris Palmer, author of Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches uh, of Revelation. And he is a um, Greek scholar, the Reverend Chris Palmer. He's the founder and pastor of Light of Today Church in Novi, Michigan. He's the host of a popular podcast, Greek for the Week. That's Greek with an R, not without, (laughs) seen on several Internet platforms. And he's a sought-after Greek scholar for his ability to make God's Word come alive in a very unique way, which is what he has done in his book, Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. Again, that's coming up in our next segment. President Trump announced uh, today that he has fired National Security Advisor John Bolton, saying he disagreed strongly with his suggestions on a range of issues. The president said he informed John Bolton last night that his services are no longer needed at the White House. I disagree strongly with many of his suggestions, as did others in the administration. And therefore, I asked John for his resignation, which was given to me this morning. I thank John very much for his service. I will be naming a new national security advisor next week. On the other hand, Mr. Bolton swiftly challenged the president's version of events saying he offered to resign, and the two have um, had well-known disagreements on a range of hot-button national security issues. He tendered his, or at least offered to tender his resignation last night. The president said, let's sleep on it. So you can choose which version of events um, is more accurate than the other, but the important element of the story, I suppose, is that John Bolton is out, and someone else, as of next week, will be back in. Uh, Bolton's removal comes after the hawkish advisor was reportedly sidelined from high-level discussions about military involvement in Afghanistan after opposing diplomatic efforts in that region. Simply put, many of Bolton's policy priorities did not align with the president. That's what a White House official said on Tuesday. While the president announced a 4,000 troop increase in 2017 as part of an effort to break the stalemate in that country, he's been moving toward agreeing to a phasing withdrawal of troops. Some 14,000 U.S. troops have remained in the country, advising and assisting Afghan forces in conducting counterterrorism operations. Well, inside the the administration, the uh, former uh, advisor, Uh, John Bolton also advocated caution on the president's strategy with North Korea and against his decision last year to pull U.S. troops out of Syria. He also led a quiet uh, effort to inside the administration uh, with allies abroad uh, to convince the president to keep U.S. forces in Syria to counter ISIS and Iranian influence in that region. He became Trump's third national security advisor in April of last year, replacing H.R. McMaster, who'd been appointed earlier in the administration to replace Michael Flynn. 
Bolton fired back on Tuesday. He tweeted moments after the president's announcement that he offered his resignation on Monday evening, saying it was not immediately accepted by the president. I offered to resign last night. The president said, let's talk about it in the morning. Bolton also said that he and the president were discussing Afghanistan on Monday evening when he offered uh, to resign. Well, again, I suppose those details aren't as important, except that they reveal a level of confusion and miscommunication that's dizzying in the um, in this administration. Well, the revelation that the Trump administration called off a summit with Taliban and Afghan leaders slated to take place at Camp David, which was in uh, many, in my estimation, ill-advised, has caused some consternation. But both the justification for the negotiations and their suspension are understandable. First, it needs to be said that the talks with the Taliban were not President Trump's idea. Barack Obama started them, and during the Obama administration, those talks led to the release of Taliban Dream Team in exchange for a deserter. They were um, a bad idea then and still are a bad idea now. However, at this point, continuing the talks was an understandable bad idea prior to the Taliban admitting they were carrying out car bombings and other attacks to gain leverage. Because at this point, America has four options in the country. Win the war by a massive surge of forces into the country where 2,296 American troops have died in a war fought for close to 18 years now as of this coming October 7th. Muddle along as we are now, leaving the fight to Special Operations Command, negotiate a deal of some sort, or lose by just pulling out. Well, until the cancellation of talks, America was doing a combination of options, two and three. Uh, That's muddle along as we are now, leaving the fight to Special Operations and negotiate a deal of some sort. America arguably lost the chance to carry out to option one when Obama announced a time-based strategy in Afghanistan back in 2009, but that was set up by earlier mistakes by the previous administration, George W. Bush, notably the failure to expand America's military in the aftermath of 9-11. And while his immediate actions in the wake of the unprovoked attack made America safer, the failure to aggressively defend those actions in the wake of uh, those controversies that followed ranks as an immense blunder. Had Bush shown a quarter of the fight in defending the long war against those uh, uh, at the time that Trump has shown with Hollywood uh, charlatans on Twitter, America might be in a much better strategic shape now. But that's all water under very dry bridge, but he didn't. Uh, we saw the heroes who got Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to uh, talk receive dishonorable mistreatment at the hands of politicians from both parties, with John McCain and Dianne Feinstein being two of the most prominent uh, perpetrators. That dishonorable treatment included leaving those who um, answered the country's call to do a difficult job to twist in the wind as the Gitmo bar. Um, and ACLU turn America's own legal system on these uh, who defended it on behalf of members of al-Qaeda. We saw military readiness decline badly and the war on terror went badly off track. Bush's failure to expand the U.S. uh, military meant that China eventually felt emboldened to pursue a more aggressive posture in the South China Sea, while Russia launched aggression against Georgia and the Ukraine. NATO declined as well and also failed to meet obligations in terms of defense spending. Trump then got uh, flack for rightly calling out Germany and Canada, among other countries. But NATO's failures, that's plural, were not the only thing that led many Americans to think that Europe was content to coast and let America fight the war on terror alone. Some NATO allies investigated or even prosecuted American intelligence operatives for their actions in the war on terror. NATO allies refused to fight alongside America in Iraq. And in the meantime, especially under Obama, our troops had their hands tied behind their backs with overly restrictive rules of engagement 
As America prematurely pulled out of Iraq and Afghanistan, the fight was turned over to Special Operations Command. We can't help but wonder if recent controversies are partially due to the fact that these elite troops bear most of the burden of the fight against radical Islamic jihadists making multiple deployments. The fact is, talking with the Taliban after they harbored Osama bin Laden and the al-Qaeda leadership is not a good look. And again, neither is sending American troops to fight and die when we have no clear plan for victory, much less the will to carry it out. The Taliban's recent actions, though, show that the latter is the lesser of two evils. And thankfully, President Trump seems to be acting accordingly, at least for now. George Soros, the left-wing billionaire, offered partial praise for President Trump in an op-ed published Monday night over his tough stance on China, but went on to urge Congress not to allow the president to use uh, Huawei to uh, the second largest smartphone maker in the world as a bargaining chip in his fight for re-election. Soros, who famously shorted the British pound in 1992 and made a billion-dollar profit, pinned the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. He said perhaps Trump's only foreign policy win during his presidency was the development of a coherent and genuinely bipartisan policy against Xi Jinping's China and his administration's move to declare Beijing a strategic rival. Soros also praised the administration's move to place Huawei on the Commerce Department's so-called entity list, which prevents U.S. companies from dealing with the telecom giant. Uh, Huawei has uh, called the actions by the Trump administration a violation of free market competition, which is pretty laughable. Soros wrote about the tense competition with the 5G market and said the U.S. has a commanding lead over China. But he warned that Trump may soon undermine his own China policy and see the advantage to Beijing. He said he believes Trump wants to free himself from the constraints by Congress and be able to remove Huawei from the list of at his own discretion. China has insisted that the company is remo- be removed from the list as a prerequisite for any trade agreement. In my view, he wrote, he wants to arrange a meeting with President Xi Jinping in the 2020 election approaches as it approaches and make a trade deal with him. And he wants Huawei's status on the table as one of the bargaining chips, Soros wrote. Well, he called on Congress to act and pointed to Representative Mike Gallagher, a Republican out of Wisconsin, and Senator Mitt Romney, also a Republican, only out of Utah, for introducing amendments that would require Congress's blessing for that removal. As founder of the Open Society Foundations, my interests in defeating Xi Jinping's China goes beyond U.S. national interests, he wrote. As I explained in a speech in Davos earlier this year, I believe that the social credit system Beijing is building, if allowed to expand, could sound the death knell of open societies, not only in China, but also around the globe. And I happen to agree with what Soros had to say in this instance. Coming up, we're going to talk with Chris Palmer, author of Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. He not only gives us the English translation that we're familiar with, but he also... uh, Uh, weaves in uh, the book an understanding of the Greek, which helps us better understand what Jesus is writing. Uh, He will join us in just a few moments. Again, Chris Palmer, Letters from Jesus. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I've been looking forward to a conversation with my next guest, Chris Palmer, he's the author of Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. And he's a Greek scholar, which adds another twist to it that helps us better understand the scriptures. Well, Letters from Jesus makes accessible to every believer a book of the New Testament that's quite often avoided. 
It's the book of Revelation. In Letters from Jesus, he offers 52 studies from the Greek text that will be a delight for every reader. Uh, He leads uh, us through a portion of text from the letters to the churches of Revelation while mining spiritual insights from the Greek text that are colorfully illustrated with personal stories and encouraging words from a pastor's heart. And it is really a fascinating study. Well, my guest is uh, Chris Palmer. He's the founder and pastor of Light of Today Church and founder of Chris Palmer Ministries. He is host of the popular podcast Greek for the Week, a Greek uh, linguistics scholar in uh, theology. He often uh, presents at Greek and uh, hermeneutic workshops. His previous books include uh, Living as a Spirit, Hearing the Voice of God on Purpose, The 85 Questions You Ask When You Begin a Relationship with God in the Believer's Journey, uh, and among others. He joins us today once again to talk about his latest Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Georgina, you there? How are you? I'm doing very well. And again, we're just delighted to have you with us. You begin in the introduction by pointing out, for those of us who are familiar with the book of Revelation, that life hasn't changed much over the last two millennia, and that even though the landscape of human advancement and achievement um, have changed somewhat, um, we're not that different from our ancestors. So this is a very relevant, as is true of all Scripture, portion of Scripture to the Church today. Absolutely. Well, first, thank you for having me on the broadcast, and uh, it's great to be in, to be heard in Portland. And uh, but yes, it is a uh, it is a like like your like your uh, radio uh, tagline is critical thinking for critical times, and uh, this book actually um, deals with situations that happened two thousand years ago. But just because the history and the culture is so far removed, our culture today is exactly the same because it's dealing with the exact same problems that we have today as they did two thousand years ago. And though we live in a technologically filled world where people are moving quickly, we find the exact same problems, and there's so much to relate, especially when you put the Greek text to it, it just brings it into a whole new light. And it really is, it made for an interesting study. As a matter of fact, um, just the way the book came out after I'd written it, I was so enriched by doing it myself that I just really was uh, pleased with the, the way it came out. And I'm, I'm certain that people that read it will be as well, Georgie. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the seven churches um, of Asia Minor. And we sometimes think we're talking about Asia, but explain a little bit about these seven churches. (laughs) So people think that maybe it's in Japan or China somewhere or, you know, in Malaysia. But actually, we're talking about the modern day country of Turkey. And we're talking about the west coast of Turkey. So if you've ever been near Izmir, um, not as far north as Istanbul, but just along that western coast right Mm -hmm. there, it's actually on the uh, eastern side of the Aegean Sea. Here you have the cradle of civilization. This is where all the cultures came together. It's where, where, where you have uh, the Middle East meets Europe meets uh, Central Asia. And, you know, you find that there are a lot of churches by this point, about 96 AD, later dates of the Book of Revelation. Uh, and John has been exiled to the island of Patmos as a political prisoner. He's busting rocks in a stone quarry, and he's probably left to himself, and he's there, he's despised. He gets this vision from Jesus, and he writes to the seven churches. Now, the Book of Revelation in the Greek, the very first word that we see is the Greek word apocalypsis. That not only tells us the revelation, but it identifies the genre of the book. Apocalyptic literature is very important at that time. Numerology was very important in apocalyptic literature, and that tells the audience, or the original audience at that time, that this was going to be an apocalyptic literature genre, which meant that they needed to pay attention to numbers. And they would have been very familiar with how numbers were in the Old Testament, and the most important Hebrew number at that time was seven. 
don't know what, how many days Jesus took to create, or God took to create, well, God and Jesus, but took to create the earth, seven times name and dip in the river Jordan, seven times they marched around the walls of Jericho. And so he writes the seven churches. That meant a complete message to all of the churches. It wouldn't just been seven churches, but all the churches around. But these specific seven churches were probably mother churches. They had other churches under them. And they were facing uh, differences of uh, challenges. Uh, and we boil those down in the book to three types of challenges with these seven churches. First challenge being uh, what Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira faced, which was warning for those tempted to assimilate with the ungodly culture. I mean, they were getting, they were being tempted from the inside out. They had uh, pr- prostitution was going on. They had idolatry that was going on, compromise. And then you see that there's two other churches that were different from them, Smyrna and Philadelphia, and they were being encouraged by the Lord because they were facing persecution. They, had, they, they didn't receive any rebuke. The Lord came to encourage them and push them forward. And then we see Sardis and Laodicea. Now, this is a church that's very common to us in the American church today. This is a church that had experienced success. They were kind of like the Milan. They had fashion going for them. They had medical advances. I often liken them to Boston. They were very, uh, very smart intellectually, but they were very comfortable in their Christianity. And they got apathetic. And so we find that in our Christian walk, we can identify with these. Sometimes mm-hmm. we're being persecuted at a new job or maybe in the country that we're living in or maybe by our family because we've converted to Jesus. Or maybe we're being tempted right now to assimilate. We see with uh, new legislation that's been passed and the, new, the way our liberal universities are leaning, it maybe we're tempted to assimilate to the culture. We're tempted just to develop the mindset of the day. Or maybe that's not the case at all. Maybe we've experienced a level of success in our life and now we don't pray the way we used to pray and don't go to church the way we go to church and seek God for his presence and his power the way that we used to seek him for it. And so we find ourselves in one of these three situations, and it's just a tremendous lens that we can look at as we go through the book of Revelation. And, Georgine, uh, it really sets the tone to jump into the fourth and fifth and all the way to the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, because we're going to see it through the eyes of one of these churches. Yeah, in fact, you write that the situation of the seven churches of Revelation provides the context for us to understand the rest of the book. Now, of all of the churches, uh, why were these seven chosen? These were not just uh, churches that yeah. stood alone. You make the point that they, they were really influencers. Can you tell us a little bit about the role they played in influencing the church at large? Yeah, so they would have been your hub churches. I mean, they would have had I'd say they would have like they would have had satellites under them. They would have been the mother church of other churches that were under them. Ephesus was the premier church. Pergamum had the biggest library at that time. Uh, Thyatira had a, a lot of workers, a, 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 you know, a larger uh, base of Christians. And so, um, not only that, but when you look at how John would have sent these letters to the churches, it would have followed an old postal route. So it was very convenient for a courier to take the letters to these seven churches and then for the letter to be written out loud. So they would have moved along the line in an old postal route and starting with Ephesus and then moving to Smyrna and then kind of making its way around. And it was just very strategic by the Holy Spirit to write to these churches because in writing to these churches, it would get the message out to all the other churches based upon their location. You write that there is an even more interesting observation um, to be noted. In Revelation 1, 12 through 18, John describes the vision he has of Jesus. He sees the resurrected Lord in the center of seven golden lampstands, which represent the seven churches. If we look at the map and imagine Christ standing in the center of the churches, we'll observe that we move around him and his splendor as we read each message. This 
represents several things. And one of them is that Christ is at the center of everything at all times. And you, there are several other things that you mentioned as well that, that make, again, the way this, this uh, portion of Revelation was written significant and what it tells us about uh, Christ's role in all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, if you, so Christ has appeared in the midst of the seven churches. This is so important. This is communicating something to all believers at all times. Number one, and this is the message we need to hear today. Number one is that Christ is the center of everything at all times. He's the center of the message of the seven churches. He's the center of the book of Revelation. I mean, so many times, uh, you know, I'm working on my PhD in Revelation, uh, a Pentecostal uh, scholar at, at University of uh, Wales, Banger. And we're looking at how the book of Revelation has been presented over the years. And we're seeing that, you know, it's going, it, a lot of times people preach Revelation, teach it, becomes a conspiratory book. We start to look at maybe uh, speculation, who could be the Antichrist. And, and we miss the message that the message is about Jesus, the message about Christ and staying faithful to the Lamb in the midst of the challenges that we face in this time of, of tribulation that we have. And so, it, but it also represents the fullness of Christ that we must fully accept everything that he's saying to the churches. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have this, we have this uh, popcorn type mentality, this buffet mentality as believers that, hey, we want the good message. We want the things we see on Instagram. We want the quotes and the good quotes about the goodness of God and the love of God. And that's good. But what about the message of judgment? What about the message of the fact that God, in order to be an ultimately good God, he has to discipline, he has to judge righteously, and that his judgment is perfect and true. And how he sees sin, and even though he's forgiven, us, we still have to make sure that we use the power of the Holy Spirit that he's given us to have a clean life and a life of holiness. And so we have to accept the full message that's in there. And number three, by being in the midst of the seven churches, it emphasizes to us that Jesus is the center and that in order to experience Christ, we experience him as a community. The Bible is written to communities. It's written to whole churches. And so that means that for us to understand the gospel and be part of the body, we have to fellowship with one another, that I'm not going to learn everything I need to know about God on my own. I have to have brothers and sisters who are there with me in the thick of the tribulation, in the thick of the persecution, in the midst of the temptation, helping me through it. And that's, yeah, that's yeah. the significance of it. We're going to take a quick break, but I'll continue my conversation with Chris Palmer. Letters from Jesus, studies from the seven churches of Revelation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back, continuing my conversation with Chris Palmer. He's the founder and pastor of Light of Today Church, founder of the Chris Path, uh, Palmer Ministries, and he's the host of the popular podcast Greek for the Week. We're talking about his latest book, Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. Now, as I've mentioned, you are a Greek scholar, and that plays a significant role in how the book is constructed to help us better understand what is it that Jesus is saying to the seven churches, and by way of the seven churches, what he is saying to us. Explain to readers who don't have a copy of the book in front of them how um, you uh, use the Greek to help us better understand what uh, what Jesus is saying. Okay, so the Greek, so first, the most important thing I want to say is that if somebody has an English translation, your English translation is really wonderful. There's the, the Word of God is, I get, because I get this a lot after interviews, that is it inspired, is it infallible, you know, is the Word of God um, an error? And I say yes, yes, and yes. Even in your English translation, they've done a great job. But if you ever study a second language, Georgine, and those listening, you know that it doesn't always carry over. Uh, you could say, you know, how are you? In English, you have three words, how are you? But in Italian, for instance, come sta is two words. So now it's, you can't really do it word for word. And so sometimes saying something 
uh, takes more words or less words. And even with that, you sometimes miss nuances. Now, John, he is a great, not, he, sometimes we think when somebody is, is in the Old Testament, was the writer of the New Testament, et cetera, et cetera, that they just kind of, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They just started writing uncontrollably. That really wasn't how it was. The inspiration of the Spirit came upon them. They were inspired with the Word of God, but they used writing style. And we noticed this, that Paul has a different writing style from John versus Peter. John's writing style is witty. He loved to make word, uh, plays on words. He loved to use language as a tool in order to emphasize and drive home a point. And he especially does this in the book of Revelation. He plays on words. And it's hard to see that in the English. You don't notice it right away. But in the Greek, you start to see emphasis, things that he says, the, the richness of the Greek text, and, and, not just, and not just what a word means, but also how the syntax is laid out. Now, the problem I've had with a lot of Greek resources in seminary and, and versus in Bible school is that it is, very, is written mostly for seminary students, a lot of these textbook seminary students, and the average person, the, the busy mother, uh, the busy father, the busy businesswoman, businessman, they don't have time every day to dig through grammars, to look up this stuff. And, and it was to me, hey, you know what? I can do this for them. I'm going to go through the richness of the Greek and the syntax. I'm going to pull it out and put it together with contemporary practical examples so that on your coffee break or in the morning or maybe you're waiting in the car to pick up your child from school, you can read one of these. It's followed with a prayer. It's followed with a practical 21st century uh, example. And you get what the Greek is saying. It has taken out the, the technical language. I've placed it in the back if scholars are interested in it. But it's such an easy read. And you see the Greek just makes it really pop. I say all the time, Georgine, it's like reading in HD. It really is. Mm-hmm. Well, the book Letters from Jesus features 52 studies on love, endurance, worldview, holiness, the Holy Spirit, Christian living, faithfulness, and walks us through for 52 weeks. Uh, the subjects that Jesus speaks to the seven churches of uh, Asia uh, Minor. Um, talk a little bit about how the book is structured, because it, again, is designed to be very practical and to help us uh, fully appreciate what uh, Jesus was saying to the churches through uh, John and what he is saying to us today. Yeah. So, so like I said, again, critical thinking for critical times, like you said, this book deals with culture. It deals with what would Jesus say to people today? And so the way I structure it is that it's 52 studies. Now, people, you don't have you can do one a week, you can do one a day, however you like. They're going to take you seven studies in each church. Some of them have eight. And you're going to start with the scripture. You're going to see it in Greek, you're going to see it in English. You don't have to have any experience in Greek to read this book or even to enjoy this book. I do it very simply for you. There's a story from uh, the news or something in culture or funny, something that is from maybe an anecdote from my personal life, my experience, but a lot of stories that are out there you may have never heard before that are from, you know, see, uh, whatever, CNN, Fox, just things like that, put it right into the book. And then at the same time, I bring in uh, the Greek and I bring in the culture. I'm telling you what's going on in the churches. And then I make a practical example for your life, how this can benefit you today with the prayer and with encouragement. And there's, there's so many things going on at the church. The cultural insight, the richness of the text. And it really, if you're looking for a book that just takes you deep without making you have to do uh, mental exercises and, and to really feel like you're in college again, this book is just fantastic. It'll really bless your life and take you deep. The book you're looking for. Was there one of the letters to the churches that resonated particularly with you? 
Yeah, well, I was hoping you'd ask this. My favorite, <laughs> uh, my, my, my favorite is Smyrna because they were like the Smyrna in Philadelphia. They were the church. They were going through a lot. And you know something, uh, Georgine? He tells the church in Smyrna. He tells them, we were laughing with the publisher. We said, hey, Jesus is saying, have no fear. It's going to get worse. That's basically what he tells them. We don't like to hear that because we want it going to get better. But he tells them, listen, this suffering that you're experiencing, it's only going to last you 10 days. Now, people say, well, what do you mean 10 days? Now, the word, the number 10 is very significant because we see the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. But then we see that there's 10 days of suffering, which means that the things that God has prepared for us in eternity and now, the, the thousand is far out of a hundred times greater than the suffering that you're experiencing in your life right now. That would have been tremendously encouraging for the Smyrnians to hear that, hey, even though I'm suffering right now, I was reading earlier today C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed. He's going through this struggle with his wife. He watches her die, you know, and his, his heart is broken. And here, the greatest writer in mind of our time, he cannot put together or make any sense of suffering. And he really leaves it without a conclusion, but he does say at the very end that he has the hope of the resurrection. And that is the truth for us as believers. We're not going to be able to make sense of our suffering here in this life. There's no answer. Doing my PhD on it, and it's really, it, you start to see it with a background philosophy. There's really no answer for it, but you know something? We have the hope of Christ. We have the hope of a thousand years, and we have the hope that whatever we're going through right now is just 10 days, and God is taking care of it through his son Jesus, and we just need to remain faithful. And that's a great spring back to go into the book of Revelation and see that what the 10 days look like versus what a thousand years look like. And it should be encouraging for us as believers and give us great joy in the victory that Christ has given us. Among the major themes that Christ chooses to employ in his letters uh, throughout this portion of uh, the text are the warnings to those who are tempted by worldliness uh, uh, and of other cultures that were in their midst. That's one of the major challenges that the church faces here in America, and I think in the West in general. Give us an insight or two on on what is said and um, the warning that might help us to avoid falling into the same uh, pitfall that the early church did. Yeah, so the church in Thyatira is a perfect example. I mean, they were the church that were compromising. They were dealing with a woman that was named Jezebel. And she, she came in on a religious tone. She came in saying she's a prophetess, teaching, and she was seducing the servants of God, and she was practicing sexual morality. And so she was basically teaching these Thyatirans, hey, you can relax your standards and you can live sexually free the way you want. And the reason is, is because, hey, you have the grace of God. You know something? Because of it, and, and this would happen in Pergamum as well, and it was done being uh, by a guy named Nicholas, who we see in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. He was a deacon, and he had gotten into loose living. He was teaching, and, and, and the Thyatirans especially. And the Thyatirans, they worked hard because, they, like I said previously, they're hard workers, and they belonged to guilds. Now, these guilds, they were dedicated to idol worship. They were dedicated usually to some Greek or Roman god, and there's pressure on the Christians. Do we go to these guild parties, or do we not go to these guild parties? If we go to them, then it's sinful. It's against our Christian belief. But if we don't go to them, then they're going to make fun of us, they're going to harass us, and they're going to first us. What should we do? And Jesus comes and he answers the question, and he points to his feet. He says, my feet are like the Greek word says, chokolibano. It's only used one time in all the scripture, and uh, the Greek philosopher said that it was far better than gold. It was the finest alloy of the time, very expensive, and it was because of its purity. He was saying, do you want to walk with me? You have to walk with me in purity. You're going to have to make a decision that your life is more important to walk with me than it is to compromise. And there was no exception for compromise. He was telling them, you must choose Jesus. You must choose me. And you know, Georgine, I do think today that as we live in this life, that the call to holiness, the call to live for Christ, 
is being resounded again, that we have to be holy people that, that endeavor to live for Christ, that we are not going to bend to the culture, that because Revelation is about confronting political idolatry. It's about saying, hey, I don't care what the culture changes and what uh, subjectiveness you see about sexuality, what subjectiveness you see about uh, redefining things. We're going to stand with Jesus. We're not going to bend our life to, uh, to to whatever people say is good in the time. And that was the 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 the, the struggle of the Thyatirans. You know something? We deal with that every yeah. single day yeah. today, and that's where they're at. Once again, the book is titled "Letters from Jesus: Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation." Um, Chris Palmer, thank you so much for the book and for talking with us today. I would uh, certainly recommend our. Uh, listeners, pick it up. Whitaker House is the publisher, and is, uh, the book is uh, currently available. Thank you so much. Georgie, thank you so much for having me. God bless you very much. You too. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Mark Anderson. He is the president of Call to All. Christian world leaders are gathering in Washington to launch the Global Year of the Bible. We'll tell you more about it. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that in this hour, we're going to be giving away our Stephen Curtis Chapman autobiography and tickets to his acoustic Christmas. So keep your eyes and ears open. I guess just your ears for that uh, coming up this hour. Well, Christian world leaders are gathering in Washington, D.C., and the purpose of their gathering is to launch the Global Year of the Bible. That meeting will take place on the 16th of September, and it's a worldwide initiative that declares the, the value of the Bible for all people and encourages Christians to live by and share God's Word, which, of course, would require us to actually open it. Well, here to talk with us about that is Mark Anderson. He is the Call to All president uh, among the Christian world leaders that will be gathering later this month. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's, a, it's, uh, it's exciting to be with you. Well, I'm thrilled that uh, the focus is going to be put on the, um, on the Scriptures, and it's not just something that's happening in this country, but it's a global year of the Bible. Explain a little bit about uh, the launch of this initiative. Well, what has happened over the last two decades is a lot of the Christian leaders have gotten together and said, we have to get the Bible translated into all 7,000 languages of the world. But at the same time, we need to do our best to help people engage the Bible. You just mentioned they have to open it. Well, two-thirds of the world doesn't even read. Mm. We have to give them audio, visual, different ways of seeing it, engaging it. And they are. We are. And uh, what's happening is most of the body of Christ in the world today is endorsing this, coming together and saying, all right, let's make 2020 the global year of the Bible, but let 2020 be the first of a decade of the Bible where we engage the globe intentionally with the Word of God, believing it itself will define many, many things. Now, the gathering will take place in Washington at the Museum of the Bible. Tell us a bit about uh, what this gathering will entail. Yeah, we, uh, the global leaders wanted to get together and announce this, and uh, they decided, well, let's just do this at the Museum of the Bible in D.C., which is, uh, has so many of the artifacts of the Bible. And Steve Green, uh, who leads it, agreed, and I organized uh, the leaders coming together, a good representation, about 80 of the top leaders. So we have a lot of the main leaders of the big movements, denominations of the world coming, and we also have uh, an endorsement from Pope Francis. He's fully behind this. Who are some of the, uh, there's a panel of leaders, I understand, that represent major Bible and missions groups around the world that are going to be a part of it. You mentioned Steve Green. Who are some of the others who will be uh, participating? Well, we have American Bible Society and Wycliffe and United Bible Society and 
the World Evangelical Alliance, which many may not know, is the largest of the evangelical alliances in the globe. But really, many of the main evangelical churches in the world are part of that network. Their whole team is coming, and their CEO and president will be there. We have uh, representation from all the continents, um, many countries, um, Youth of the Mission, Crew. Um, a lot of the main organizations that work across the body of Christ are going to be there with their top representation. And so this, uh, But this represents the biggest initiative of this kind that we've ever done as the body of Christ in the world. Mm. It represents the majority of the body of Christ across the spectrum saying, we believe the Bible is the foundation for every society in the world, and it has the basic principles for every category of life that we need to follow. Now, at this gathering, you're going to share the Bible Engagement Covenant. Tell us about that. Well, that's the covenant that we have been working on now for almost a decade, where we have a points of agreement. And, you know, there's 2.4 billion people in the world that identify themselves as followers of Jesus. And maybe some folks don't know that number, but that that's huge. That's one-third of the world. And there's thousands of leaders that have all looked at this, and we've agreed to recognize, celebrate, educate, inspire, motivate, encourage people to read the Bible, engage the Bible, and obey it. But it has uh, many, many things that we're going to agree on that are written in a document with a lot of Scripture. And, uh, yeah, we just believe, and history proves, that when the Word of God is followed, all the different categories of life, every sphere of society is affected. Mm -hmm. Now, as you uh, point out in a statement uh, that's part of the press release that I received, we're living in a strategic time. The challenge of translating God's word in whatever form represents the heart language of a people group uh, is achievable in ways that previous generations could not even have imagined. How, how challenging is it? How challenging will it be? to make God's Word available to people in their heart language, whether that's an audio version or a printed version or a pictorial version. How challenging is that uh, effort to get the, the Word of God out to the world? Well, it's big. And if you would have asked me that question 20 years ago when we gathered together the main leaders in these areas, um, we had looked at it and said it would take 150 years to get to the final translation, you know, which is a really long period of time. Mm -hmm. But because of technology and going about this in many different new ways, um, we believe now that we can have all the translation work, the majority of it, done in the next 14 years, hmm. by 2033, you know, the anniversary of Pentecost. And that itself is extraordinary, but then Bible engagement's the next level where you actually help people participate in engaging the Bible for their life. But the good news there, too, is that Many, many movements around the world that do church planting are using the Bible itself as the main foundation for the church planting. And people are being taught to study it. We have audio listening groups. It is really an exciting time. The truth is there are many cultures of the world now that are more um, Bible aware, perhaps, even than those in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's exciting to know that um, there are going to be world leaders, Christian world leaders gathering in Washington, D.C., but I'm going to be sitting here in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> and as you talk about, um, you know, translating and then engaging uh, cultures with, with God's word, I don't want to be left out of this, this movement, this emphasis on the global year of the Bible. What can average people like me in our locales do to support this effort um, to really fulfill the Great Commission? Well, it's a great question and um, very practical one. And Mike said to family, most of them live here. 
we have these conversations, but really what we need to do in the United States, and there's a whole plan around this as well, is we need to get to know people around us, workplace, neighbors. Most people are open to the Bible. There's just about across the spectrum. And the Bible's available so easily now. I mean, you can do version. Anybody can download it right now. There's 300 million people that use that. It's in every major language. It has all sorts of Bible studies and things available and 17 different translations. Um, It's easy to do, and I find that my friends, neighbors, people I work with, whatever, are very open to having a discussion about the Bible itself, and they want their children to be very exposed to the Bible. uh, They're very concerned about values, morals, you know, all this, uh, these types of things that you know, that are lacking in so many now in the younger generations. They want to see those instilled in their children. So we're finding a wide open door for the Bible, for the Word of God. So I would just encourage people to download it, study it for themselves, look at the teachings. It's available so easily now through all the social media, but then just talk to people. Yep. That's what we need to do. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. We'll certainly be watching with great interest on the 16th of September and praying about this movement that has accelerated in just the last, as you pointed out, 20 years. The possibilities are just staggering. So we are grateful. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, my pleasure. God bless. Thank you so much. Again, uh, Mark Anderson is the president of Call to All, the Christian World Leaders Gathering in D.C. on the 16th to declare the Worldwide Initiative the year of the Bible. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 22 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Started Bible Study Fellowship today. I don't know uh, if they all start. Well, I guess they start in different days, but I started today, this morning. I take Tuesday mornings to go to Bible Study Fellowship. It makes the day a bit harder. I have to squeeze a lot more work into a much shorter period of time, but oh. I'm so excited. We're studying the Acts of the Apostles, and um, ah, I just love God's Word. I love studying it in context of community with other women, and it's just, I'm excited about this uh, thing on the 16th, uh, declaring this the year of the Bible. I'm excited about the letters from Jesus. I'm just excited. And in that uh, vein, I want to give away our um, Stephen Curtis Chapman autobiography, Between Heaven and the Real World. And I'm also going to be giving away two tickets to Stephen Curtis Chapman's Acoustic Christmas Concert. That's Sunday, December 15th, 7 o'clock p.m. in uh, Tualatin at Rolling Hills Community Church. So we would love to give uh, both of those things away. And we'll do that again tomorrow and Thursday to caller number five and the number 800-845-2162, 800-845-2162. Again, caller number five. A copy of Stephen Curtis Chapman's autobiography, Between Heaven and the Real World, and two tickets to his acoustic Christmas concert Sunday, December 15th, 7 o'clock p.m. at Rolling Hills Community Church in Tualatin. So congratulations to caller number five. Well, famed New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees is under attack by the, uh, uh, well, by lots of folks. Uh, you know, why is he suddenly the subject of so much attention? What on earth has this NFL player done now? Now, you've got uh, Brown, who was kicked off of one team and picked up on another. You know, you've got all kinds of stuff that goes on in the NFL. So what on earth has Drew Brees done now to draw the ire of the media and his critics? Did he protest the national anthem? Well, no. Did he tweet something nasty about the president? Well, no. Uh, For those things, he would be applauded by the cultural elites. But no, Brees' sin 
was recording a brief video encouraging kids to take their Bibles to school, encouraging them to live out their faith and to share God's love with their friends. Oh, the horror of it all. Gary Bauer writes, the video was produced by um, Focus on the Family and for the for um, that Breeze is being accused of promoting hate and being anti-LGBT. Nothing could be further from the truth, the truth rather, about either Drew Breeze or Focus on the Family. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, Bauer writes, I still look back fondly on my years with Focus on the Family and my relationship with Dr. James Dobson. It was Dr. Dobson who appointed me as president of the Family Research Council after I left the Reagan administration. The overwhelming majority of Focus's work is helping to keep marriages and families intact because that is what we know is best for children. Focus isn't trying to force its values on anyone else. It doesn't force anyone to follow its advice. It offers it freely to anyone who seeks it. The attack on Breeze is just the latest indication of a growing intolerance for men and women of faith. It's a reminder of what, what's at stake in the culture war raging over the values that we're going to pass on to children and grandchildren, presumably our own. Such a controversy who can endure it. Well, declaring that the Holy Spirit is just fed up with it, controversial televangelist Benny Hinn, formerly one of the most aggressive proponents of the prosperity gospel, has for the first time in his career delivered a full-throated rejection of the practice that made him and his family millions. Now, the prosperity gospel teaches, among other things, that believers have a right to the blessings of health and wealth. They can obtain these blessings through positive confessions of faith and sowing of seeds through the faithful payments of tithes and offerings to, in some cases, particular individuals who prosper uh, quite um, vigorously. Speaking to his followers during a Facebook Live broadcast on Monday night, a week or two back, uh, which was first highlighted by Larry Reed Live, Benny Hinn, who has been a lightning rod for criticism for his support of the theology, declared the gospel is not for sale. I'm sorry to say that prosperity has gone a little crazy, he says, and I'm correcting my own theology, and you need to all know it. Because when I read the Bible now, I don't see the Bible in the same eyes I saw 20 years ago, he said to his followers uh, who rejoiced. I think if it's offensive to the Lord, it's an offense to say, give $1,000. I think it's an offense to the Holy Spirit to place a price on the gospel, he went on to say. I'm done with it. I will never again ask you to give $1,000 or whatever amount because I think the Holy Ghost is just fed up with it. Did you hear me? Hen asked as his audience responded affirmatively in high spirits. I think it hurts the gospel, so I'm making this statement for the first time in my life, and frankly, I don't care what people think about me anymore, he continued. When they invite me to telethons, I think they will not like me anymore because when you look at the Word of God, which apparently he had not done up to this point, if I hear one more time, break the back of debt with $1,000, I'm going to rebuke them, he says. I think that's buying the gospel, that's buying the blessing, that's grieving the Holy Spirit. If you are not giving because you love Jesus, don't bother giving, Hinn argued. I think giving has become such a gimmick, it's making me sick to my stomach, end quote. Well, his outright rejection of the prosperity gospel comes just two months after his nephew, Costi Hinn, revealed in his new book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, how truth overwhelms a life built on lies, how his family exploited millions around the world with the prosperity gospel and often traded so-called miracles for money. Costi Hinn wrote, giving to God was the secret to unlocking your dreams. It was the secret to job promotions. It was access to our divine bank account. 
My uncle often told the story of how he got out of debt using this system of belief. His father-in-law had told him that in order to be debt-free, he needed to pay God. Benny explained that once he started emptying his bank account and giving money away to ministry, money started showing up from everywhere, end quote. Well, in 2018, Hinn admitted that he uh, that as his uh, as he has grown older and come to understand the Bible more, he realized that some of the things he learned from preachers when he was growing up aren't biblical, including the prosperity gospel. The more you know the Bible, the more you become biblically based and more balanced in your opinions and your thoughts, because we are all influenced, Hinn said. This is Hinn the Younger. When I was younger, I was influenced by the preachers who taught whatever they taught. But as I've lived longer, I'm thinking, wait a minute, you know, this doesn't fit totally with the Bible and it doesn't fit with reality. So what is prosperity? No lack. I've said uh, this before, Hin said. He then elaborated on how he believes no lack should be interpreted. Did Elijah the prophet have a car? No. Did not even have a bicycle. He had no lack. Did Jesus drive a car or live in a mansion? No. He had no lack. How about the apostles? None lacked among them, Hin said. Again, in the younger today, the idea of abundance and palatial homes and cars and bank accounts, the focus is wrong. It's so wrong. He said, even though he has been accused of living lavishly and flying private jets in the past, that is not how he currently lives. I mean, forgive me. People have accused me of things that aren't even real. One guy wrote a comment. Oh, he's worth 40 million dollars. Oh, how I wish I would give it all to the kingdom before God Almighty. He said, well, he flies private jets. He continued mimicking. Criticism. No, I don't. I have not flown private in, dear God, years. I fly commercial just like anyone else. That's a little confusing to me. This was from the Christian Post, which is speaking in that case. But Costi Hinn, the nephew, uh, says he's encouraged by his uncle's recent rejection of the prosperity gospel, but called it called for undeniable lasting fruit that exemplifies genuine repentance. Serving as a pastor, he rejected the health and wealth theology presented by his uncle after working alongside him for years, and he took to Twitter to weigh in on the changing beliefs. Um, he said, I encourage, uh, I'm encouraged to see him express a refutation of prosperity theology and even admit to wrong teachings on that topic. Now pray for undeniable, lasting fruit that exemplifies genuine repentance. Time and truth go hand in hand. In a follow-up tweet, uh, he wrote of his uncle, He'll always be my uncle. I will always love him and pray for him until he or I are gone from the earth. Well, um, sort of an interesting development. A pastor on the China-North Korea border shared his faith with at least 1,000 North Koreans in the hermit kingdom before he was assassinated in 2016. A defector now says, Reverend Han Chung Rial, a Chinese pastor of Korean descent who ministered on the border town of Changbai, since the early 1990s, was reportedly on Pyongyang's most wanted list as early as 2003 for his faith-based charitable work. Han fed and sheltered thousands of North Koreans over the years, many of whom had fled the famine-stricken country in search of food and jobs. One of them, Sang Chul, uh, shared his story in a short documentary from The Voice of the Martyrs as a way to encourage believers around the world to participate in the International Day of prayer for the persecuted church, which, by the way, is Sunday, November 3rd. That video will be featured on Voice of the Martyrs website for that occasion. In primary school, we were taught that all missionaries were terrorists, Shang Chul shares in the video through a translator. They told us that a missionary will be nice to at first, but when you get into your homes, then they will kill you and eat your liver, he was told. Well, the North Korean said he didn't have work or food in the village, so he snuck across the border. He was ministered to. By this pastor, Shang Chul, um, 
who ministered to apparently a thousand North Koreans before his execution, according to this defector. And again, his story and that of another believer who decided a North Korean who crossed the border to go back into her country to serve as an evangelist will be featured in a video on the Voice of the Martyrs website for the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church on Sunday, November 3rd. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, last month, a crack team of researchers determined that there is no gay gene. Peter Sprigg, a senior fellow for policy studies at Family Research Council, shared his thoughts on their findings and impacts recently. And he argued that if same-sex attraction is not an inborn immutable trait, it doesn't deserve the same protections as character, uh, characteristics like race and sex. Well, joining us today to talk about this study that was uh, recently released, the Genome-Wide Association Study, its findings and how it was reported is uh, Mr. Sprigg, again, Senior Fellow for Policy Studies at the Family Research Council. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Now, the study that we're talking about uh, uh, has been or will be published in the journal Science. Can you tell us what the findings were and how it was reported? Yes, this was um, an attempt to uh, get by the the weakness of previous studies uh, regarding any sort of genetic link between a genetic effect or, or genetic relationship with, with homosexuality by using a very large database uh, or two large databases, from the, uh, from, one from the United Kingdom and one from the United States from 23andMe, the, uh, uh, the company you can go to to get your, genes, uh, your genome done. And um, they, looking at the entire genome, and this large database of nearly 500,000 individuals. They looked for statistical correlations um, between uh, people's genetic makeup and, uh, and the question of whether they had ever engaged in same-sex sexual behavior. And they um, suggested that there was, that at most about a third of, uh, of the same-sex sexual behavior in the population is influenced by genetic factors but that means that two-thirds of it is not. Two-thirds has to be attributed to social or environmental or cultural factors. And, uh, and they found that, um, that it's impossible to predict what any one individual's sexual orientation uh, is based just on the genetic information that's available. And they did explicitly say that this debunks the idea that there is somewhere a single gay gene that actually determines whether someone uh, is going to be uh, homosexual or not. Now, the media conceded that point, and you write that um, that they concede that there is not one gay gene, but they're still pushing the idea of genes being involved in same-sex attraction uh, as far as they can. You cite the New York Times that began its headline, Many Genes Influence Same-Sex Sexuality. The Washington Post headline emphasizes that genetics are linked to same-sex behavior. Now, that can be misleading, suggesting that there is a gay gene or that there is a collection of genes that is a much stronger argument uh, than the the one-third influence that you just cited and the report cites. Yes, and I think a big part of the what what people need to understand is the uh and this is something you talk about a lot all the time in the social sciences is the difference between causation and correlation. Just because, you know, there are two characteristics and they tend to uh, correlate with each other doesn't mean that one is causing the other necessarily. And I think what we have here, even with that 
one third that uh, 0.32 heritability rating, 32% heritability as they call it. That's um, that's really more of a correlation than a causation. They can't really say, oh, this causes, uh, you know, the genes cause homosexuality in a third of the people who have it, and so forth. They can just say that there is some sort of correlation there. And that's what people need to understand because the concept of the gay gene has always been that people people are born gay, that they can't help it, that this is something that is in their, in their biological or genetic makeup and that is immutable and will never be changed. And that's simply not what this study found. And I think we need to, uh, while we need to concede that there may be uh, some genetic correlation with uh, our sexual behavior, just as there is genetic correlation with all kinds of things like our religious behavior, for example, um, uh, there is a measure of heritability. But we know that people don't, people's religion is not written in their genes. It's not determined by their genes. So um, that's what we need to, to really make that distinction and understand that influence is not determination. Now, this this the notion of studying this question has been somewhat controversial, even within the uh, the homosexual community. On the one hand, uh, the citing a gay gene could be viewed favorably and others within the uh, the community believe it could be viewed unfavorably. Um, Who wins in in terms of the argument of uh, this being an immutable characteristic worthy of special protection? Who wins in this argument uh, first being asked and then now being answered? Well, it's interesting because the New York Times article did kind of go on at length about the fact that even some of the people in the Broad Institute, which is the organization that was kind of the chief um, uh, chief organization involved in this study, they, they're kind of a coalition of scientists from Harvard and MIT that do this genetics work. Uh, they, they have um, people within the organization who are concerned about this, uh, about these, this study being done and about the findings. Uh, and that suggests to me that it doesn't serve the political interests of the LGBT movement because it does undermine the idea that people are born gay and can't change, which has always been fundamental to the claim that sexual orientation should be a protected category under our civil rights laws. Now, of course, there, there are LGBT activists who, who claim that, you know, they should ha- it should be a protected category whether they're born that way or not. There, there are other arguments they can make, but this has always been a foundational one, and it's seriously undermined. The other thing that concerns them is that they did find, they found some, you know, correlation between um, genetics and, and same-sex sexual behavior, but they also found a correlation between the same-sex sexual behavior and certain um, behaviors and uh, other behaviors and psychological characteristics such as uh, depression and schizophrenia, which they don't necessarily want to have uh, associated with homosexuality. And yet there, there is some correlation there as well. Now, does this put the question to bed or is this just the latest in what will be an ongoing effort to determine uh, whether or not something can be cited as an immutable characteristic worthy of special protection? Well, I certainly think that it puts to bed the idea of there being one single gay gene, this sort of holy grail of, of, uh, of you know, LGBT genetic research, uh, that somehow they would find the gay gene, the one spot on the genome that makes people gay. That's been pretty well put to rest by this study. But I'm sure they will continue to try to sort of massage and finesse the findings and, and make it look like, um, make it still look like this is something that, 
uh, uh, people, you know, are born with and, and that they can't change. And, and, and we just know from the, the total, sum total of the evidence that that's not true. Well, uh, again, for people who are interested in learning more, this, um, I don't know if it has already been or will be in the journal Science. Do you know what the status is on that? Well, yes, it has been, uh, it has been posted online uh, already. Um, uh, in, at, right at the August 30th, I believe, was the official publication date. And uh, we, I have a link to it in my blog post that I wrote about this, which you can find at frcblog.com. And I would encourage people to read that to, to gain an understanding. In terms of the way it was reported, do you think it was misleading as to the, uh, the discovery of this uh, rather large study group? Well, I think it was misleading to an extent. I think uh, that given the findings, the, the media did have to concede uh, generally that there was no single gay gene, but they still seem to put the emphasis on this um, idea that there is a link between genetics and and uh, homosexuality, or at least same-sex sexual behavior, and um, I think that I think the intention is to continue to sort of confuse the public because they didn't. I don't think the media did adequately explain this difference between correlation and causation, the difference between genes influencing a characteristic and determining that characteristic. For those who understand the study, is this likely to have impact on public policy, or this just contributes to a growing body of evidence? Uh, countering the notion of a singular gay gene. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly I think we, we at Family Research Council will uh, point to this as evidence that, uh, that um, sexual orientation is not a characteristic that's comparable to race, uh, where it's an obviously a biological and genetic characteristic that's inborn and immutable. Uh, and so uh, th- that's, that's one argument that uh, I think uh, is boosted on our side, but, uh, but th- that doesn't mean that that will settle the argument in the political arena. Yeah, that's, that certainly is the case. Well, thank you so much for talking with us about this. Again, Peter Sprigg, a senior fellow for policy studies at the Family Research Council. Appreciate your time very much. Thank you. And again, you can go to the Family Research Council, frc.blog, to read his article and other resources there as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In just a moment, we're going to take a break and we'll be back to wrap things up. They found evidence of what they believe to be the biblical town of Emmaus. So we'll tell you more about that when we come back. Also, a glimpse at what's coming up for the remainder of this week right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, archaeologists in Israel may have discovered the biblical town of Emmaus. It's linked, of course, to Jesus' resurrection, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Heritz reports that archaeologists have uncovered the remains of a 2,200-year-old fortification um, a hill on the outskirts of um, a village near Jerusalem. Well, the fortification dates back to the Hellenistic period when ancient Greek influence in the region was pretty strong. Tel Aviv University professor Israel Finkelstein, he told Herz that the, um, the walls were repaired during the latter period of the Roman rule in the first century A.D. Well, Finkelstein and his fellow researchers, they suggest the site could be the famous biblical town or village of Emmaus. According to the scriptures, Jesus appeared to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his crucifixion and resurrection. Now, I've been to Israel several times, and we've been to an area, a general uh, area, where it is believed that the road to Emmaus is located. But this, apparently, the, the 
uh, city, the town, the village itself. In Luke 24, 13 through 35, Emmaus is described as being about seven miles from Jerusalem. And this corresponds with the distance between um, Abu Nash and Jerusalem in this new area that they uh, believe is the exact location. Well, the Emmaus is also described in uh, ancient histories as being a fortified town west of Jerusalem, um, a site uh, that uh, has recently been uncovered. It is referred to, and I don't, uh, I don't have the pronunciation, Kiriath Jerem. It's also mentioned in the Bible as one of the places where the Ark of the Covenant stood. Last year, Fekelstein and his fellow researchers reported that the site um, is the hill on the outskirts of Abu Hash or Gosh. Um, the latest research is described in a forthcoming paper. It's published in the journal New Studies in the Archaeology of Jerusalem and its Region, which is fascinating if you're following what we have discovered. Now, there are things that we know from Scripture. There are things that are in the 21st century and the last have been discovered, confirming what we know from Scripture. Well, other locations uh, have also been suggested for the site of Emmaus, such as the ancient Byzantine town of Emmaus Nicopolis and the modern village of Matzah, according to Hertz, again, which is an Israeli publication. Well, the dig at this location is a joint project of Tel Aviv University and the College de France, uh, supported by the um, Schumannus family in San Francisco, Mr. Finkelstein, who leads the project with uh, a couple of others from the College de France, told uh, Fox News that the latest discoveries offer a fascinating glimpse into the site's role in the ancient world. It predates what we read about in Scripture and follows. The finds at this location hint at its long-term role in, as guarding the approach to Jerusalem. He explained, this is via email, this can be seen in the Iron Age, Hellenistic, and early Roman periods. The Hellenistic and Roman period remains shed light on the much-debated issue of the location of this New Testament Emmaus. Well, the prominent Israeli archaeologist is renowned for taking an evidence-based approach to his research, which acknowledges the complexity of biblical texts. Reading the Bible, it is important to distinguish historical facts from the ideological, theological stances of the authors, uh, he said, of um, his work in trying to discover what's, uh, what can be discovered in the 21st century of these ancient ruins. Well, this week on the program, we're going to talk uh, tomorrow with uh, Michael Lefebvre. Uh, Dr. Lefebvre is the author of The Liturgy of Creation. It's a fascinating look at calendars in the Bible. The subtitle of the book is Understanding Calendars in Old Testament Context. Uh, On Thursday, we'll talk with uh, Charles Chrismeyer, author of Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. And uh, we're also going to talk with Justin Farrell. He is with Better Dads. They're having a father-daughter conference that's coming up uh, here in the Portland metro area. We want to make sure you have all the important details. And this is such an important conference uh, for uh, men who want to connect and relate to their daughters in ways that are so essential to their development. So that's uh, going to be a conversation we'll have also on Thursday, and we're looking forward to uh, sharing that Uh, with you, Justin Farrell, with Better Dads. By the way, you can go to kpdq.com and find more information about that event or go to their website, Better Dads, for information on that as well. Well, newly newly discovered North Korean propaganda footage shed some light on how the communist regime trained state security agents on how to identify and silence Christians in that hermit kingdom. A video that was obtained by the Voice of the Martyrs, an organization I would highly recommend if you have regard for, concern about, and a willingness to pray for the persecuted church. It's a Christian nonprofit that supports persecuted believers all over the world. 
uh, translated by uh, the Voice of the Martyrs Korean staff. The previously unseen film shows the story of Cha um, Daek-sun, whose life otherwise might not have been known to the world, and her belief in a deity other than Kim Jong-un, which is a very dangerous thing. The video, according to Todd Nettleton, host of the Voice of the Martyrs Radio and an author of the history of Christianity in North Korea, said this video illustrates very clearly why it's so important for Christians everywhere to pray for North Korea and for Christians there. According to the video, Chao was described as a spy, a description of evangelists commonly used in, of North Korean, uh, in North Korean propaganda. Chao lost her faith in uh, government during the Great Famine of the 1990s when she illegally crossed the border into China, found God at um, Sautep Church, and then became a fanatical believer. Uh, who was inspired to return to North Korea and form an underground church. Now, it's difficult for us to fully appreciate what that means. One of the things that's different to, uh, difficult rather, to understand for many Americans is that being a Christian in North Korea is not just following a different religion or even following Western teaching. The Kim regime is built on the idea that Kim, uh, all of the Kims are divine beings. So being a Christian is treason. The regime understands clearly that North Koreans hearing about salvation through Jesus Christ is a direct threat to their political power. Well, the underground believer turned herself in for breaking the law crossing into China, but authorities were lenient and let her go. Because she was impoverished, Cha was able to travel from city to city to earn more money. But officials say she gave money to poor people and gathered with fellow underground Christians every Sunday to worship, pray, sing hymns, and study the scriptures. Well, eventually she was uh, reported by a good and awakened North Korean citizen. Uh, Though it's not clear how she died, Voice of the Martyrs believes that she was either executed by firing squad or died in a concentration camp. Her story is similar to Pastor Han Chung Rial, a Chinese pastor of Korean descent who had a church in the China-North Korea border or on the border. He was executed in 2016 after leading more than a thousand North Koreans to Christ. We'll talk. We talked a little about that earlier in the program. Voice of the Martyrs videos for this year's International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church focuses on North Korea and on the story of another martyr who was killed for reaching out to North Koreans with the gospel. Pastor Han Nettleman went on to say. We need to remember to pray for uh, the persecuted church because we are connected to one another by virtue of our common heritage in Christ. All right, we're going to take a, a break here for, what, 24 hours. We'll be back here tomorrow. I hope you will join us. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.